come this Lord's Day to consider a few thoughts from Hebrews, the second chapter, which we've preached on many, many times. But these thoughts are largely prompted by some reading I was doing over the last few days from John Owen's magisterial commentary on the book of Hebrews. I think it runs to 600 and something pages. I think it took them eight volumes to publish it back in the 1600s. I was focusing on Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 about the subject of Christ destroying him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And of course, all sorts of false teachers use that text to deny the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ and to totally confuse and mix up large swaths of Christian doctrine. So I thought I would see what Dr. Owen had to say about that text. And it turned out he could only squeeze out 12,200 words on those two verses. 22 pages in small print. But what he wrote was very clear and very useful and quite exhaustive. He seems to have covered all the bases. And I was struck by one paragraph, and much of what I have to say this morning was brought to mind by what Owen wrote in that little simple paragraph. The question is this, why did the second person of the Godhead have to be incarnate in our flesh? Why was that necessary? Well, the Jewish people appear to have believed it was so that Messiah could come into this world and reign forever on the throne of David. So when Jesus comes, that's what they're waiting for, that's what they're looking for, and then they didn't get it. So they were angry, so they rejected Him. And even today, I've talked to Jewish friends who say they can't accept Christ as Messiah because He was supposed to come and reign and rule and set up His kingdom. And they didn't have any plan on Him being crucified by the Romans. Their hearts are hard and their eyes are blind and their ears are stopped up and only the Holy Spirit will be able to open those and change those. We can't. But the question is, why was it necessary for Him to be incarnate in our flesh and become as a man, become a man, while yet still God? Even the Jewish believers in the first century were puzzled by the lack of a kingdom. And, and you remember when Jesus ascended, just before He ascended, they said, Lord, now bringest Thou in the kingdom. And He sort of waved them off told them their job was to preach the gospel to every creature. But where is this kingdom that we were promised and that we long for, they thought. And some of them thought maybe we should just go back to our Judaism, our people, our culture, and our temple sacrifices. Of course, Hebrews was written as an appeal for them to be loyal to Jesus as Messiah and to explain clearly why He did what He did and what He accomplished in what He did. And this is the truth of the matter, that the incarnation is principally so that Christ could die as a man in the place of His people to save us. That's the main point. That's not the only point, but it is 
the crucial point. It is the point of necessity. And Hebrews begins to lay this out in chapter 2 after having established in chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus is truly God of very God and has been given by His Father the whole world to rule over in His humanity and has already an everlasting throne given to Him according to the text quoted from the Old Testament by the writer of Hebrews with angels worshiping Him and He being so much higher than the angels. In the Old Testament, of course, there was this promise of the reign of Messiah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of His kingdom and His rule there shall be no end, and an ever-increasing righteousness and peace. So this is what the Jewish people were waiting for. And even the promises of Gabriel to Mary were that her son would be the son of the highest. He would be called the son of God. He would be given an everlasting kingdom ruling on the throne of David forever and ever. And you know, she died never seeing that prophecy by Gabriel fulfilled in her eyes, didn't she? Even Jesus refers to it many times in John 17, verse 4, for example, in His high priestly prayer. He says, I have glorified Thee, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest Me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou Me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. So you see, Christ is disclosing that He always had the glory of God upon him. Even though it wasn't visible in his ministry, except at the Mount of Transfiguration. You see, he didn't come primarily to take up a throne and rule. He came primarily to lay down his life to save his people. Hebrews does not posit the reign of Messiah as the explanation of the Incarnation. But rather... In chapter 2 of Hebrews, we find the real reason, the principal reason, the necessary reason why Christ had to be incarnate in human flesh. We can see this at verse 9 of Hebrews 2. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. This phrase, made a little lower than the angels, is a term of art for humanity, humans. Jesus is said that He was made in that form so that He could suffer death. But we see Him crowned with glory and honor that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So this is the reason why the Lord Jesus had to be incarnate in human flesh if for no other reason, for the suffering of death, that He might taste death for every man. For it became Him for whom were all things and by whom were all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So here is Christ described as the captain of our salvation, the leader of our salvation, being made perfect through sufferings, so that He might what bring many sons unto glory. 
For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. You see how the writer is drawing the Hebrew Christians into an understanding that not only is the second person of the Godhead incarnate in human flesh, but it's for a specific purpose that He might die to save His people. And that this incarnation is real and substantial and enduring and that it's appropriate by and through that incarnation the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is properly referred to as the brother of all the sons that the Father has given Him to lead unto glory. He's a proper brother. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Think of that. He's the Lord of glory. He's God for all eternity, but manifest in the flesh and not too proud and not too exalted to deign to refer to His people, you and I and all the saints that have gone before and that will come after, as His brethren. You see, that's a close-knit thing. It's a family matter. And indeed, Paul in other places develops the whole idea that we're adopted sons in the royal family. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. We're all humans. We're all people. And then he quotes some verses from the Old Testament that describe Christ relating to His brethren. Christ singing praise to God to His brethren. We putting our trust in Him again I and the children which God hath given me. But then he says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So here's another statement of the incarnation. What is it? It's that he be clothed in flesh and blood just like we. A human body. A human entity which is born of a woman. But look at what it says. That through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. So here is the deliverance by the death of our elder brother, God incarnate in the flesh. And it says that he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. And that's where all the controversy comes up. Well, how does the devil have the power of death? Some of these people think that means that God can't save anybody unless he can somehow snatch us away from the devil or pay the devil off or whatever the case. That's not what it means at all. That's not what it means at all. The devil has the power of death because he introduced sin into the world. He tempts the Lord's creation to commit sin, thereby putting them under the wrath of God and the just punishment of God. God told Adam that in the day where ye eat of this fruit, ye shall surely die, or dying ye shall die. And that referred to physical death, everlasting death, separation from God. The whole nine yards was promised as a punishment, as a penalty. And it's always been the devil's desire to destroy the works of God's hands, and especially the ones that he has a special love for, and seeks to redeem, the devil wants to destroy us. That's why Jesus said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. 
And he's also a liar. And the way he murdered the human race, drug us down into the power of death, was by lying to us, lying to Eve about what God had commanded and telling her that God didn't know what He was talking about. She could go right ahead and eat that fruit and tempting her to it and drawing her into it and then laughing at how devious and sly He's been to use God's justice and righteousness against Him to destroy the thing that He created and ones that He loves. And so now the devil invokes the justice of God and taunts God and accuses the Lord's people and demands that the judgment be carried out. He knows he's supposed to be judged and he wants to take as many people with him as he can and he wants to tear down what God made and destroy what God loves and do it all based on accusations against the Lord's people and thinks he can force God's hand to act and destroy against his people. But of course, he doesn't take into account that God can be just and justify those who believe in Jesus. He can declare us righteous for Jesus' sake. Why? Because God rains down the wrath on Jesus in our place. He satisfies the demands of divine justice. And that's why Paul says that nobody can condemn us because it's God that justified us. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect because Christ, the condemned one, has been raised and seated at the right hand and makes intercession for us. So in this way, you see, the death of Jesus destroys the power of the devil that he thought he had to draw all of God's creation down to death and to destruction. And then he says, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So it is this fear, the, the fear of death, not just physical death, but the penal aspect of death, the, the punishment of death and all that it entails and all the horror and eternality of it that it entails that puts people in bondage. But when the Lord Jesus died and took away the power of death from the devil, and satisfied all the justice. Now we need no longer be in bondage of fear of death. And this bondage may also refer to a slavish keeping of the law in a frantic and futile attempt to escape the judgment of death. You remember God promised that whoever keeps His law shall live. But then it turns out nobody could keep His law. But that doesn't stop people from trying and then being discouraged, and then giving up, or doubling down, whatever the case might be. You see, if you're under that regime still, then you're in bondage through the fear of death. But Christ sets us free because He has broken that claim of justice against poor sinners by taking that claim of justice and exhausting it upon His own self at the cross. He goes on later in this chapter to explain that not only all that, but also that Christ's incarnation sets Him up and suits Him to be the high priest of His people before God, the representative of us before God. And only later on, you see, 
in the book of Hebrews, that is, is the method by which Christ's death saves us clearly laid out by being a sacrifice to take the place of all the animal sacrifices that could never take away sin. Christ the heavenly Lamb took all our sin away, as Isaac Watts put it. He was a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And we see this most clearly drawn out in Hebrews 9 and 10. So, Dr. Owen's statement that struck me about this text of Scripture was this headline. The first and principal end of the Lord Christ's assuming human nature was not to reign in it, but to suffer and die in it. And then he points out this. He need not have been made partaker of flesh and blood to have been a king, for he was the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the king of kings and lord of lords, the only potentate from everlasting. But he could not have died if he had not been made partaker of our nature. Now, in connection to this, we read this morning John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember the conclusion of the whole matter at verse 13 of John 6? Therefore, they gathered together the scraps of the food and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. So here Christ had performed a miracle and multiplied the bread and the fish and fed 5,000 people. And this was the kind of king that they could get behind. Somebody who had the power to take away labor and work for sustenance and just make the things by His mighty power and distribute to His people. Isn't that what we all want from the government? Free stuff? Stuff that we don't have to work for? A lot of people want that from the government. Here Jesus... This is just one of His miracles. He could heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and now He could feed His people with no effort on their part. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come unto the world. And you remember later they chased Him down. He said He knew why they were there because they didn't really want to hear the Gospel. They just wanted some more of the free food. Then look at verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take Him by force to make Him a king, He departed again into a mountain alone Himself. He evaded them. Why, this would have been what the disciples were waiting for, for the crowds to rise up and make Jesus king. But you see what He did here. He is incarnate in human flesh. He has laid the predicate from a human perspective, why they ought to want Him to be king, completely ignorant of what His real purpose was and the complications that would ensue if they got their way. And here He leaves them. He he disappears. He eludes them when He perceives that they would take Him by force and make Him king. But then remember what happened when His real purpose in the Incarnation was upon Him. John 18, at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Kidron, 
where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Have you noticed that Jesus went to meet his betrayer and the thugs and the government agents who would take him to be crucified? He went there deliberately. And you remember, he prayed in an agony in the garden And he knew exactly what was going to happen. He always knew. We've spoken on this many times. But he didn't get up and leave. He stayed there. He submitted to the will of his Father and the purpose of his incarnation. So there he was, Judas having received a band of men and officers, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. I think this was done to establish that all of what Christ was doing was completely voluntary on his part, even as he had the power without saying a word or exercising any apparent physical power to defend himself, even as it was displayed that they were powerless before him to take him without his consent. Then ask ye them again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which ye spoke of them which thou gavest me. I have lost none. So here the Lord Jesus is from a human perspective is like practically begging them to go ahead and finish the job and take him in for his trial and conviction and murder at the cross. But then notice Simon Peter thinks he's going to help out. He tries to stop it by whipping out his sword and chopping off somebody's ear. No doubt he meant to split his head open. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? So here is an expression of Christ's willingness to die as the incarnate Son of God, even after He has avoided the possibility that He should be made King to rule as the incarnate Son of God. And then in Matthew 26, At the same incident, Jesus says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be, that is, that He must die in the flesh as a man in order to save His people? And earlier, Jesus had said, Now is my soul trouble. This is in John 12. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify Thy name. So here Christ is articulating explicitly what the writer of Hebrews has said, that it is for the death of Jesus that He is incarnate as a man and came into this world. That is the reason why He was incarnate in human flesh. Now, O Brother Owen had, of course, quite a bit more to say. He always did. He said this, 
The first and principal end of the Lord Christ's assuming human nature was not to reign in it, but to suffer and die in it. And He said, Therefore, when the people would have taken Him by force and made Him king, He hid Himself from them. But He hid not Himself when they came to take Him by force and put Him to death, but affirmed that for that hour or business of dying to save us, He came into, he came into the world. This obedience of Christ in dying was, of course, expressed as His delight to do His Father's will. His delight to do His Father's will. We see this in Psalm 40 at verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will. O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And Hebrews 10 appropriates that text at verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, speaking of animals, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. Then he says, he taketh away the first, that is, the sacrifices of the animals, that he may establish the second, that is, the will of God, that he die in his body, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But of course, it had been foretold long before that by Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And afterwards, on the road to Emmaus, the Lord Jesus said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And so it is that the Lord Jesus confirms and prophecy foretold that the principal purpose of the Incarnation was so that he might die to save his people. Dr. Owen says this, This further sets forth his love and condescension. He saw the work that was proposed unto him how he was to be exposed unto miseries, afflictions, and persecutions, and at length to make his soul an offering for sin. Yet because it was all for the salvation of the children, he was contented with it and delighted in it. Finally, just this observation in closing. Men may lead us loyally in principle in this life, and with great and noble purpose. And I was speaking to a friend of mine who reminded me that in his country they had had great leaders who had led them in principle to stand up against the terrorists who were bombing and murdering their family and friends. There was, of course, a great deal of pressure on the leaders to capitulate, to cut a deal. 
In fact, the breaking point was when President George W. Bush invited the terrorists to the White House for St. Patrick's Day and the leaders and pressured them to reach an agreement to join with the terrorists to form a government. And the leaders broke. And they formed a league with the terrorists. And now the terrorists are in charge of the government. The people that were out murdering and killing. And my friend, you know, was, of course, cast down by it. Because how could those people who had so bravely and loyally followed principle at great cost and led the people came down to this that when power came within their grasp, they changed. They capitulated. They cut deals. When power came within their grasp. It doesn't even have to be power in your hand. It just has to be the promise of it or the prospect of it. The prospect of power changes good people. Turns them into traitors. We know that statement by Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But have you noticed that it's not so with the Lord Jesus? Not so with the Lord Jesus. He came into this world to save His people by dying for us. And the devil tempted Him with power, with glory, with a shortcut to gain the kingdom and He rejected it. And the people tried to take Him by force and make Him a king and He rejected it. And the prospect of His dying was so distasteful and painful and horrible to Him Yet he submitted to it. And his own disciples tried in vain to stop what he came to do in his incarnation. And he politely and gently turned them down and he went to the cross and he laid down his life. He was murdered in a horrific way in order to save his people, in order to accomplish that noble purpose for which he was incarnate in human flesh in the first place. That is how our Lord Jesus failed to succumb, refused to succumb to the desire, the prospect of power in order to escape the woeful, dreadful costs of the thing which must be done for the saving of His people. And that brings up this interesting and sad point. If after what Jesus did for us at Calvary, and after He foreswore the tantalizing prospect of power instead of the suffering of death for us, how can anyone dare to claim that they will take Him as their Savior, but not as their Lord? Not as their King. The one who bypassed, if you will, surrendered for the time being, let's put it that way, this substantial physical rule of a kingdom that he was entitled to take unto himself. But that would frustrate the saving of his people. He subjugated, as it were, his right to seize his kingdom and outward rule, and instead he died to redeem us. If he had not, we would never have survived His rule. That's the irony of it. All these people, Jewish people, who wanted Christ to take up His rule, 
and forego this silly idea of the crucifixion and saving His people from their sin, if Christ had set up His rule, by and by they would have all been incinerated, as would we all. We're not fit to be ruled by God manifested in the flesh. There would be no righteousness in us. He would have to repudiate us and ultimately condemn us. And so we wouldn't like it if His kingdom increased in righteousness. That's the death knell for sinners. only thing we can survive in is a kingdom that downplays righteousness and decreases righteousness and turns righteousness away. Uh, lost people, no matter how good they are, whether they're Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or the nice elderly blue-haired lady that feeds cats and is kind to people, no matter who, ultimately, if we were subject to the reign of Christ without the death of Christ on our account, why we would not survive His rule. But by His blood we are reconciled to God, made fit to be ruled by such a one as His dear Son. So as we approach the Christmas season, let's remember the fundamental, the primary reason why Christ was incarnate in human flesh was that He might suffer and die to redeem us from our sin. And around this table, we celebrate the way in which He did it. He went to the cross. His body was mutilated and torn for us. His blood was poured out. His life was given up by Himself voluntarily. No one took it from Him. He laid it down. But His bloodshedding brings the forgiveness of our sins. And by it we are redeemed and made fit, made perfect in Christ, fit to be ruled by such a one. And one day He'll come in power and glory and we'll see that rule manifest physically. He rules already, but we just can't perceive it a lot of times or see it. But we long to see it actually worked out physically, don't we? We want to see Him come and destroy the wicked and make the world restore it to its beauty before it was marred by sin. And we want that precious peace and quiet that He promises us as the Prince of Peace. So let's give thanks around the Lord's table for the bread that pictures His body and the cup that pictures His blood that was shed for us. Let's give thanks for the bread first. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your divine plan of redemption that You sent Your Son to be incarnate, clothed in our humanity, flesh and blood like His brethren whom He would redeem, and that He was faithful to it all the way to the end, no matter what blandishments His people, the wicked or the devil himself, flashed in front of Him. He set His face like flint to accomplish that horrible yet noble work of dying to save us. And we thank You for this picture, this bread that pictures that broken body on the tree that He laid down to save us. We give You the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures tell us on the night He was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. After that, the Lord Jesus took the cup. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus 
by which our sins are forgiven. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 285 in the black book. Thomas Kelly's hymn, Praise the Savior. My mind was drawn to this by this phrase. Who can tell how much we owe Him? Gladly let us render to Him all we are and have. He is not only our Savior, but He is our King and our Lord and our Prince. Praise God. Number 285.